Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other, a program where we cross divides and find common ground. And we don't mind having some fun either. And by the way, if you like the show, tell a friend. As you may know by now, listeners recommending our program to their friends and family who might like it is the number one way word gets out about what we're doing here. I am your host, and uh, before we I introduce our guests, I'm coming. I, I'm I'm already coming to think of these fellows as, as as friends, and hopefully over time they'll get to know me and think of me as such as well. I do want to say something about a new friend that we've made over the course of doing this program. Some of you might know Daniel Darling. Uh, Dan has been in the news here over the last week for something he said about why he took the vaccine. Um, frankly, I thought that he did it in a winsome way. I also thought that he explained that, you know, uh, that he understands why some folks might still have concerns. I thought he did it in a winsome way. Um, but nonetheless, because of saying that publicly, he was fired from his job. So I just bring it up because, you know, he's a good friend of the show. And if you get a chance to find him on social media and give him some love and, you know, just express some support for him, I'd appreciate that. I'm sure Dan would appreciate that, too. And uh, without further ado, I am just so looking forward to introducing our two guests, Odell Cleveland and Bill Goebel. Odell, on top of being a very good looking black man, <laughs> right? Did I get that right? <laughs> you got it perfect. You, you have 2020 eyesight, my friend. <laughs> Is a nationally recognized leader helping diverse groups reach common ground related to pressing social problems. He has decades of experience in business and nonprofit agency leadership. Odell has been called upon by national think tanks such as the Urban Institute and the American Enterprise Institute, as well as many local and regional organizations. Bill, Bill Goebel, is the owner and president of Impact Solutions. It's a training company that provides online and hands-on instruction. He's been on numerous boards for both profit and nonprofit organizations. He recently served on a team that started a bank to service small business commercial loans in North Carolina. Bill is also an Eagle Scout and currently serves as vice chair of Territory 15 of the Boy Scouts of America, in addition to mentoring high school boys from his local church. Together, they are the co-hosts of Bill and Odell are finding common ground. As they describe it, one Republican, one Democrat, one black, one white, both devoted Christians that love the Lord and love one another. Odell, Bill. What a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Doing well, Corey. Thank you for the invite. Definitely. And it's interesting that as Christians, sometimes we allow politics, race, religion to get in the way. I just think sometimes, Corey, me and Bill ask ourselves this question all the time. Do you think we're going to be this divided in heaven, a black heaven, a white heaven, a good looking black guy heaven, you know, all these type of things? What do you think heaven's going to look like? And I think that's kind of what we have to get back to. And some of our civility as we continue to, you know, 
in the old days, the water cooler conversations. Well, now just the conversations now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, first I, I was curious about how different it was for each of you growing up, as well as to understand the common ground. Uh, so to, to get us started, could you tell us a little bit, each of you about your backgrounds, where, where y'all are from, and, and then I'd love to hear how you met. Okay. Odell, why don't you go first? Sure. Okay. Now, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina in the 60s. I was born in the 1960s, one of the most racist cities in the country. Uh, we fought our way through integration. Um, we lived in public housing, real poor, divorced, single mother of four. And at one time, I didn't like white people. I just didn't like white people. Any and every interaction with white people were either walking through white neighborhoods and they were throwing rocks at us or calling us the N-road word. And we were calling them words and throwing rocks right back. So for a long time growing up, just had a disdain for white people. All the biases, all the prejudice, all the stereotypes were wide open. And that's kind of the neighborhood, that's the culture that I grew up in. And it's, it was a long time before I started meeting people who wouldn't fit my stereotypes. So I had to make a change. And, and I grew up in a, a town outside of Cleveland called Parma. It's about 120,000 people. Uh, I was the oldest of eight. My dad was a fireman. Uh, we had 66 first cousins within walking distance. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was a big clan. And uh, my grandfather was a councilman in town known as Grandpa Joe. And my dad was a fireman. My uncle was a policeman. And so it was, if you're growing up, you had a lot of people that knew your name. And if you uh, got in trouble, your parents knew it before you got home. So, uh, but growing up, uh, we were kind of uh, sheltered because of the way our culture was. You know, my, my life evolved around school, which I wasn't very good at, uh, sports, which I was okay at, and Boy Scouts, which I was pretty good at. And, uh, and the only time we ever saw a black person in our town was um, sometimes the bus drivers and also uh, maybe when our high school played a black school they would come in. But it's interesting to note, my high school is an all boys Catholic school. And uh, even though black people were escorted out of our town, and there were no black people living in our town, when we had our uh, double decker dances at our high school, it was a big event. And uh, we'd have the downstairs, the cafeteria and upstairs, the gym. And uh, we would bring in the four seasons. Oh, wow. Like that. We bring in black bands because we were all into Motown. OK, we didn't have any black friends, but we were all into that music and none of us could had rhythm. Bunch of white boys. You can't dance, <laughs> can't even jump. <laughs> and Odell's laughing pretty good there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was curious, too, um, uh, about your professional trajectory. Something that caught my attention, Bill, is uh, I was looking up where you've been over the course of your career. You served as a congressional aide to Charles Vanek of Ohio's 22nd District. But Odell, this might surprise you, uh, but Congressman Vanek was a Democrat. That's right. Did you know that, Odell? Yes. Bill, I was curious, were you a Democrat back then or were you already a Republican just serving in a Democrat's office? The Democratic Party back then was like the Republicans. They were very conservative and it kind of switched. But it's interesting how that happened. I, was, I wanted to go to law school and I, and I was in college. And uh, I was working three jobs going to college. And I said, well, if I want to go to law school, why don't I get a job working in a law firm? So I applied for a docket clerk at a law firm in Cleveland. 
the name of the firm was Vanek Monroe Zucco and Klein. So Charlie Vanek was the senior member, but he had he was he was a congressman for 27 years. They were just using his name. So I worked there for a number of years, didn't get into law school. And uh, I called Charlie and I said, hey, listen, I'm going to have a gap year. Can I work for you as a congressional aide? So he hired me as a congressional aide in Cleveland. But then uh, he called me up and he said, hey, Bill, uh, I need a roommate. My wife's in California with an elderly mom and my dad and my kids are all in college. Would you move in with me? So mm. I lived with Charlie and he passed the Vanek. He, he was involved with the Vanek, Jackson Vanek bill, which uh, brought 1.2 million Jews out of the Soviet Union. And it was a major bill to allow persecuted Jews and Christians and Muslims to flee the Iron Curtain. Wow. And what, what, what years was that? That was uh, in the 70s. Okay. In the 70s. Yeah, because we had, um, we had cousins who came here in the early 80s. Uh, so, so we just, my family just celebrated the hundred year, the centennial of when my grandmother uh, landed with her family on Ellis Island. Wow. But there was a good chunk of the family that was left uh, in Russia. Yeah. So it was the early eighties that some of our cousins finally were able wow, to. Wow. That's probably, probably how you got out. You know, the guy who was responsible, there was a guy named Mark Talsman. Mark Talsman uh, was very influential in the Jewish community on a national level, world level. And he's the one that got Charlie involved in this. It's a long story, but I won't go into it. But uh, the bottom line is Mark ended up starting the Holocaust Museum oh, in wow. D.C. And Mark and I became good friends. We lost each, we lost contact with each other. Uh, he was a gourmet cook, an Eagle Scout. He was friends with all kinds of senators and congressmen and Supreme Court justice and ambassadors. Just a well-known individual. Taught at Harvard School of Government. He was just a genius. And so I lost track of him when I... Odell and I were in Israel, they were talking about this Soviet immigration. And so I, we had a chance in the bus to talk in the microphone and said, well, I don't know if this is a big deal or not, but you know, I, I worked for Charlie Vanek, Jackson Vanek, and it was like, and I know this guy named Mark Talsman. I was like, holy cow, you know Mark Talsman. So one of the ladies that was in our trip worked for him too, and she had a cell phone. So we called him from Israel and I hadn't talked to him in like 20 years. And he goes, Bill, what are you doing in the promised land? <laughs> and uh, so we ended up reconnecting and uh, he asked me to come to D.C. I went up and visited him and his wife. Uh, I got his kitchen chairs in, in my kitchen. He wanted me to buy them from. So I did. But we became good friends. And, That's great. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away recently. So. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, now, Odell, something that I've heard you a phrase I've heard you use turning a, a couple different places uh, in your in some of your writing and, and uh, on your program turning the social safety net into a hammock. Uh, yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that and how you're helping folks out of that trap? Well, I just think when growing up in poverty and public housing, not all, but some, you see a lot of people playing the system. And a lot of times in America, we have a great social safety net. You can get food stamps, you can get housing, you can get WIC, you can get so many things for free, but if you're not careful, you start relying on the government, you start relying on the system, and it's almost like you kind of relax. Just like if we go on vacation, you know, to relax, you get in a hammock. Well, if you're not careful and turn that safety net into a hammock, then all of a sudden you just have, have so many problems. You get entangled, you get in, ensnared, you get entrapped because it's not designed to be a hammock. It's designed to be a safety net. 
you know, get up there, do the best you can. If you fall along the way, it's there to protect you, but you can't live on it. You can't have two, three, four, five, six generations that everybody in the family live in public housing. Everybody in the family is on welfare. Everybody in the family is on this. And I'm not judging. I'm, I'm not judging. So I'm not sitting here saying, oh my God, listen to him. No, I'm saying the American dream is there. Mm. It's hard, but the American dream is there. And I'm not saying just because I did it, but I grew up in poverty. And my mother always told us we could be anything we want to be as long as we did three things. Trust in God, get the best education that you can, and never look down on nobody. Always try to help other people. And those were the three things. And here, this is a, a divorced single mother who had a massive stroke at 25, raising four children in public housing and out of poverty. So that's why I'm like, don't get caught on the system. It's like a drug. It's like a drug that if you're not careful, let's not spend all our time, whether you're white, you're black, whatever, trying to figure out how can I get the next check? How can I get the next free something? No, that's just a trap. It's a trap and it's just disheartening as a person of color when I see a lot of people fall into that trap. So that's what I was trying to say. Now, a lot of people got very upset with me on that statement, but I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Well, one of the reasons I, I asked that question is as I was learning more about your respective backgrounds, it's easy to say, well, Bill's a Republican, Odell's a Democrat. And a lot of times we have the habit of, of saying, okay, well, but now I know all I need to know about these folks. But you know, mm-hmm. every individual indeed is an individual and has this yes. interesting yeah. background and and some things that, you, you know, like in that instance, Odell, it seems like uh, a principle like turning the social safety net into a ha- hammock and helping people out of that is not maybe where th- folks think the energy of today's Democratic Party is. So it's a nuance in who you are and what you're all about, what you've worked towards. And and Bill, uh, working in a Democratic congressman's uh, office earlier in your career is not something that might come intuitively because we just we have no memory and and we get locked into tunnel vision about who we think people are. So I really appreciated that about each of your background. Uh, Now, even knowing a little bit about that, I'm curious uh, now. I'm curious how how you both met. You, you come from very different places and have de- very different uh, political dispositions. Uh, how, how did you all meet? It was Christmas trees. Christmas trees. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That that there's a story. I'm sure there's a story there. Come on. <laughs> I uh, I w- we do our high school kids would do missions trips and and uh, there's a church in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, in real drug ridden area, and this pastor would go up to Northern New York and pick up Christmas trees, a whole tractor trailer and give them away and have a big festival in the street. So we would go up and help them load them and, and give them away. So I started thinking about it. I said, well, why can't we do that in Greensboro? So uh, we ended up uh, one year getting Christmas trees from them and uh, I needed a place to distribute them. And I wanted to distribute them in an area that uh, people that need them would, would be. Uh, they wouldn't have to go far. So someone told me I need to talk to this guy, Odell Cleveland and welfare reform. And I said, okay, I think I've heard his name. And so we went down there and visited and Odell wasn't there, but a lot of pictures of him. So I knew he was a good looking black man. (laughs) (laughs) And I I said, I got to meet this guy. And, uh, and you know, he was busy and I was busy. We never met. And 
we went to give the trees away and lo and behold, uh, they didn't show up. And I had put out a flyer and we had hundreds of people waiting to pick them up. And uh, it was raining out. And I, so I was scrambling. I, I got some people to donate a few trees. I collected some money, but we didn't have enough for as many as that we had lined up. So I was running up and down the street, explaining to everybody why we didn't have it. But if they needed them, we'll get them one and get their name. And this guy pulls up and his, his woman's driving him. And I uh, rolls down the window and I said, I, I'm telling him, I, I don't have any trees. He goes, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for a tree. I said, well, who are you? And he says, I'm Odell Cleveland. And I said, oh, you're the big shot. He goes, no, the one driving the car is the big shot. <laughs> that's how we, that's how I met him. Oh, that's great. That's great. And, and, you know, it's interesting that Bill is that guy. We were leaving. Um, he said pictures on the wall. He's referring to newspaper articles and all this kind of stuff, because a big part of our program at that time was to show people how to get from point A to point B. That, yes, I grew up poor. Yes, I was trapped in the social safety net, all this type of stuff. But you can get out of it because a lot of times people would rather see a sermon than hear one. And I got calls from my staff saying, hey, the guy with the trees, some things happened. So we were on our way back from Washington. I think it was some event we were either doing with the Bush administration or the Obama administration. We got invited up. So we were coming back. I was tired. My wife decided okay, you're not driving well, you need to go sit in the passenger seat, let me drive. And when we got there, we saw Bill and just his passion, just the passion core of this guy saying, listen, I'm gonna make this thing right. And I'm like, wow, I don't know who this guy is, but I wanna get to know him better. And then years later, we had an opportunity to meet again at, uh, he invited me with the Boy Scouts. You know, Do I know somebody wanna serve on the Boy Scout Council? And I asked him a couple of questions and ended up serving. That's great, that's great. Now, Odell and Bill, we're, we're gonna get into some politics and religion in a second, but before we do, I'd love to give folks a sense of what you're both doing nowadays. Uh, Bill, uh, you have 30 years in senior management and in the business world and very active in the Boy Scouts, as we've mentioned. Odell, you're, you're the chief administrative officer of a large and growing church, in addition to having a book coming out, uh, yes. Come Walk With Me, uh, and uh -huh. a sought after speaker. Can you fill us, in about all that and uh, all you're involved with currently? Well, well, currently what we're doing, of course, I am the chief administrative officer of a large, large church, African-American. Well, I should say 99.9999999% African-American <laughs> because of course, Bill can come, Corey, you can come, anybody can come <laughs> to the, the Lord's house. But, you know, lately COVID has just been so tough. So think of it like this. We were a house of prayer. We were a house of worship. Well, we had to turn because at the time, the governor would not allow folks to come in and have services because COVID just started. So we had to turn this house of prayer and this house of worship into a house of service. So we started doing COVID testing. We started doing flu shots. We started doing food giveaways. We started doing COVID vaccination. So I think when it's all said and done, we did close to, and you know, with our partners, about 10,000 COVID vaccinations. We're still doing COVID testing. So we started doing all those things. And in the middle of all of that, gentlemen, COVID funerals. We have so many challenges in the state of North Carolina around COVID funerals because what we did, we had to do them real fast. And that's totally against our culture. So we have a lot of mental health challenges out here now because people were doing grave graveside services 
we couldn't have but so many people inside at one time and everything had to be fast. It couldn't be singing. Bill couldn't come to the black church to stay for five hours for a funeral. You know, none of that. Bill couldn't do any of that, Corey, at all. So those are the type of things that we're going back now, mopping up, trying to fix. But now we have a variant coming along. And so we're just trying to, we're burying a lot of people. I guess mm. the truth of the matter is the health disparities that we read about, the statistical analysis is real. And when they say people of color, we're burying people of color. Mm. Wow. 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 Well, the uh, what I'm doing now is I started another company, a fractional CFO. It's called Focus CFO. Uh, basically, retired CFOs that want to work one day or two days a month. Uh, we farm them out to small companies that couldn't afford a, a CFO of that quality. And uh, in a day or two a month, they can they can really help a small company uh, going forward. So I just started that and getting that off the ground. And the other, the other thing is with scouting, uh, I've been serving on a committee to change the culture of the Boy Scouts business operation for the next hundred years without touching the scout oath and law. Wow. And so we put together a program called the Polaris Method, and I've trained 27 consuls. Uh, we've got 280 in total. Uh, so we've got a team that goes out and I'm part of the team. Obviously, COVID put halt to that training, but it's coming back. And then uh, Odell and I are working on this little thing called a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. So I, I would like to ask you about that. Now, as mentioned, one of you is a Republican and one of you is a Democrat. Both of you love the Lord and uh, believe in the authority of Scripture. Have you discussed yet how you can both be reading your Bible, both be taking it seriously, both be taking it as God's word, and yet you each come to different political con conclusions despite having the same frame of reference for so much of your decision-making and worldview? Yeah, definitely. And, and the thing about it is that in a lot of cases, it's similar conclusions. I'm very, I'm, I'm Black, of course. I'm a Democrat, been a Democrat my whole life. And very conservative, always been conservative. At one time, I endorsed a Republican for Congress. There's another gentleman. He was a young up-and-comer. No one knew about him at the time. And he was a evangelical white Republican pastor. And he came in and he asked me, can he sit down and talk with me? We talked, we talked, and he asked again just some more. Then he asked me, would I support him? Well, I did more to support him. I endorsed him. It was all over the news. It was the newspaper. And I got so many calls. How can you, a Black leader who's a Democrat, endorse a Republican and your endorsement is probably going to allow him to win? And it's like, no, 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 no. Ask the question, why didn't the young lady who was a Democrat ever come and ask me or anyone else in this church to support her and what she was doing. Because a lot of times with the Bible states, and when I interpret from these scriptures is one thing, you know, the black vote, in so many cases, the Democratic Party takes the black vote for granted. And the Republican Party ignores the black vote. So the black vote is caught between a political rock and a hard place. And I'm just trying to change that paragraph that, that, you know, you have to change it because if it's a two party system, in my opinion, that we're heavily weighted in one party and we are, and I'm not saying for all black people to quit being a Democrat and be a Republican. But what I am saying is let's listen 
and understand what the person is talking about, what's their voting records, what they're going to do, and get in the game the right way. Because if you just vote for someone just because they're Democratic, just because they're Republican, or just because they're shorter, just because they're tall, then that doesn't put the pressure on them to deliver or at least answer back to you. And that's where I think sometimes we're sleep at the switch. And so that's when I believe my Bible, my Bible, and I believe Martin Luther King Jr. that, you know, I have to fight against my biases, my prejudice, and my stereotypes, because I'm not the child growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, hating white people, throwing rocks and doing all those things. I've learned that is not all, but some. Yes, some white people hate me because I'm Black. Some Black people hate white folks because they're white. I understand that. But the scriptures tells us that we have to judge and we have to be accountable to God. And how can I be accountable to God if I hate you and I don't even know you? I don't even know you, but I hate you. That's that's ungodly in my opinion. That's ungodly. And, and you know, I, I look at the Bible and I don't see Democrat or Republican. I don't see black or white. What I do see is I became a Christian in 1984. And I remember looking at the Bible because I was born and raised Catholic and we were told not to read the Bible, that the priest, that was the priest's responsibility. He would interpret it for us. So I owned a Bible, but I never opened it up. And so when I was finally being fed by the word uh, and I started learning it and it took a long time. I mean, it, it, what they say is true. You're an infant. You got to take small chunks. You got to take it in liquid form. You, it, it's not something you just read like a book and get, a, get, get the hidden meetings to get the, get the, you really get into it milk before solid food you got yes. it yeah and you know i i uh, every time i read a section or i hear somebody preach on something i go man i didn't think about that okay that didn't even occur to me i listened to this guy bill greasy he's a catholic but he's a jewish theologian and historian and he was a professor at U U ucla he he goes through the whole bible and uh the, some of the history things that he picks up are unbelievable one little one was uh, you know, when Jesus was coming in on the donkey. Well, if you look at where he came in that gate, the Roman legions could see that. And so could the high priests where they were located. So, you know, they're saying, you know, they were waving the palms, you know, yeah, yeah, son of David. Well, the Romans interpretation was David was the greatest warrior of the Jewish world. This is his son coming. Uh oh, we better put it be on high alert. And then waving the palms, we, we thought was peace. That was kind of a way that if they glisten in the sun, they look like swords. So now the, the, the Romans are on alert. The Jewish people, the, the leaders of the Jewish community are upset because there's so many people supporting Jesus. They're trying to figure out what to do with this guy. I never would have thought of that until Bill Greasy, the historian, brought it. And then when we went to Israel with Odell and a team, we were standing right there. And I go, oh, my gosh, I can see how this would happen. Yeah. Yeah, some of the some of my one of my favorite theologians, historians of today is a fellow named N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. And I love the work that he does because he takes a historian's view and does historians work on first century uh, Canaan or first century Palestine. And um, he also happens to be uh, in the um, Anglican, the Anglican Church. And uh, so he 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 went about a lot of his history work as an academic and he risks the possibility that if he does his job as a historian, some of his theological framework might be shaken. But, you know, after um, after a lifetime of work, 
there's definitely more nuance to how he sees what was happening uh, in the first century um, in Israel. There's definitely more nuance, but his faith is that much more firm, mm. you know. Uh, but I, I just he he was so influential for me, you know, to look at uh, especially his big books, you know, Jesus. The middle one is I think it's called Jesus and the Victory of God. The first one is New Testament of the People of God. Um, the last couple are, are uh, well, there's one uh, just about the resurrection, and it really makes you think uh, about critical moments in history. And he treats it, you know, mostly as a historian, but doesn't deny that he's a, you know, he's a faithful Anglican. So it's I, I appreciate work like that. Now, finding common ground. What prompted you to start the program? Bill, you want to take that one? Yeah. Uh, the good looking black guy. Uh, <laughs> when we were friends, we started talking. We we traveled together with our wives. And, you know, you have those moments at night. You have a glass of wine. You're sitting around talking and just thinking about, you know, life and our friendship. You know, we said, hey, look, we had to write a book. We had to write a book, you know, because we started talking about how he grew up and how I grew up. And and uh, Odell's written a couple of books. We said, hey, maybe we'll write a book. And you know, we came up with a working name and everything. And then, and then Odell said, uh, no, I, I think I want to do a podcast with you. And I, I've never listened to podcasts, quite frankly. I do now. And, uh, and Corey, I'm going to listen to your show a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Talk politics or religion without killing each other. Add it to your yeah, playlist. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We, we said, let's, let's, let's do that. And so Odell, uh, um, I got busy and I really didn't pursue it. And then Odell was approached uh, by another fella, and he was on his podcast. And uh, the fella offered to have Odell come on as a as co-host. I guess Odell is that right? Yes. So Odell did that for a while, and he, every time he saw me, he would say, "Bill, that's what I wanted to do with you, brother." And he says, and "I said, well, have me on as a guest or something." And he goes, "No, no, I want to do it with you." And uh, so we knew a fellow by the name of Stu Epperson. I, I knew him. He owned a bunch of Christian radio stations. So I called Stu up and and Odell actually picked up the ball and ran with it. He, he called Stu after I introduced him. And Odell, why don't you pick it up from there? Well, it's just, you know, when God, it was early 2000, no, yeah, 2000 and late 2018, early 2019. And I'm like, Bill, these conversations that you and I are having as friends other people need these conversations because there's a lot of people who are good, black, good, white, and they want to talk, but they don't have permission to talk about things that they want to talk about. And I started, I went on the gentleman's uh, TV show, uh, got invited to that, did well. Then they're like, hey, man, we like what's going on. Do you want to help co-host this podcast we plan on? forming said okay no problem and I did it and it was more of a Hannity and Combs type thing good people though nothing wrong with them just good people however my friend you know my friend is Bill and it was different so I said okay I want to go ahead and start one with my friend Bill and we started that one and then the other one kind of um, went by the wayside but it's just a opportunity to sit down and talk about things that we see differently and the feedback that we've been getting from so many of our loyal listeners is like, listen, I, I just love that. Now this allows me to talk about this with my black friend or my white friend, or I never even heard nobody just be as candid as the two of you all talking about race because you know, people, race makes people uncomfortable. Just talking about race makes people uncomfortable. It's like, you don't even know who's gonna overhear you, that kind of stuff. And we talk about it 
boldly and as truthful and honestly as we can. Yeah, you are definitely equipping the saints and you were going there. Uh, so one of your first episodes, you were discussing racial issues that affect relationships. And you, you had touched upon this in, in the conversation that if you have friends who object to your also being friends with some of, of a different race, those objections might be more muted. I think that's what I heard you say. But you being friends with someone of a different political persuasion, that met with more explicit resistance. Is that is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and I don't know, if, Bill, from your perspective, being a, a white guy hanging out with a good looking black guy who happened to be a Democrat, who's not an evangelical, who everything else. But I learned a long time ago, I was in college, I had a good a good friend. He turned out to be a good friend and he happened to be gay. And this gentleman, we were sitting down and talk. And he just asked me one day, he said, Odell, will you go to a gay club with me? Nothing, you know, nothing crazy like that, but just to get an understanding because this guy, he was just a good friend. And so he asked me the question, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with me per se, but this is just who I am. And after asking me forever, I finally went with him once and it was nothing like I thought it would be. I was very guarded the whole time. And I had a better understanding of my friend. I had a better understanding. It didn't change my views on being gay, straight, anything like that. However, it helped me understand better about my friend. And then we had a different platform to talk about it. Because a lot of times, if we talk about it, we don't have to agree, but we can respect each other's point of opinion instead of trying to destroy everyone because I'm black, you're white, you're gay, I'm straight. It's, it's just not right. What we're doing now, and this was 20 years ago, so imagine now how the heat has been turned up. I mean, we're we're fighting people over masks. You know, we're doing all kinds of things. Yeah. No, then you add, you add uh, some of the things like uh, uh, Floyd and all those issues uh, that come out, and all of a sudden the, the, the debate starts. The, the, you know, my, I have one daughter that's on one side and one's on the other. And uh, one day they started talking about Floyd and what happened. And one was on one extreme and they ended up shouting at each mm. other. I mean, shouting at each other, gotten so carried away. And, and I'm thinking, gosh, I got to find them to help find them get some common ground because, you know, I had to get their emotions turned down because what happens is we get emotionally tied into these things. And once your emotions click in, it's tough to un unclick that because then you sometimes become irrational as opposed to sitting back and understanding. You know, I was taught to hate the Russians because the Russians were trying to kill us with nuclear weapons. I grew up hiding, taking turns, hiding under desks and that. And I remember the first time I met a Russian, I was scared to death. I thought he was going to try and kill me. It was in New York City at a party. And I was in the downstairs and the upstairs. Somebody said, here's a bunch of Russians up there. You got to go meet them. I go, no way. <laughs> and how rational is that right yeah. but it was a true fear yeah i grew up thinking that way about yankees fans yeah. <laughs> oh man okay <laughs> we're mets fans in my house so we're long suffering no yeah. you bring up some good points bill there was one show about critical race theory and bill i heard you say something really caught my attention i forget what you're talking about beforehand but you said i'm in the learning phase I think you said being a Republican, you received some information from the Republican Party that provided a definition of CRT, like Republican Party's definition of CRT. But you said you're still in the learning phase. So 
Is that a posture you've always defaulted to the learning phase or? If I don't have enough time to spend intellectualizing and thinking it through, I try not to do a knee jerk. Yeah. Okay. So I will default back to give me some time to digest it. Okay. And, you know, I did, I did go online and find out this thing's been around since the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. And now is it, it's being used as a political football. That's what I think, because I get to see the democratic version of critical race as well. And uh, I'm a member of the NAACP, which all my Republican friends go, what in the world are you doing? And I, and I said, listen, if, if they're, they're my, they're, they're people, <laughs> I, I need to understand where they're coming from. I don't always agree with it, but from critical race theory, from what I heard on the Republican side uh, is irrational. And I don't think it makes common sense. And I haven't talked to a teacher that teaches it. Uh, I haven't read the full book of the fellow that, that really wrote about it. There was, he came and spoke in a school system here in Charlotte. They paid him $25,000. Holy cow. It was like, what are you doing? You're bringing the devil in and you're paying him money. So, uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of, when I hear those, those kind of comments, I kind of step back and say, I need to take a look at this in a more rational manner. And that means I got to listen to podcast. I may have to listen to a book. I may have to read a book. I'm not a good big reader. I listen to them more than anything else. Read articles. So friends like uh, Joshua, Rabbi Joshua Ben-Gideon, you know, I told him I was struggling with that. I need to understand it. And he's been shooting me some articles. Odell has a great perspective on it that really helped me because uh, we were at a, a Rotary Club and uh, they asked him two questions. And uh, one was about critical race theory. And he, he talked about being on the uh, Arc de Triumph going around in a circle. He'll, he'll share that story. And then he asked him, why did all the black people applaud when OJ Simpson was acquitted? Yeah. That's I, I I get uncomfortable with questions like that because it's almost like asking Odell to speak for every person of color in the world. Like, OK, so you it reminds me. I mean, it's not the same exact thing. But when I started going to church, uh, we belonged to this big uh, Southern Baptist church here in town. And uh, word got out that I was, you know, lifelong Jew, observant Jew, and I had become a Christian. So I often got these questions like, why do all you Jews dot dot fill yeah. in the blank? I'm like, yeah. all, all us do, like, we're all the same, number one, and I can speak for all of them, you know? Uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I heard there's some Jewish Yankee fans, so I certainly can't account for them. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, so for, for both of you, actually, so do you have a methodology? You know, you said you're in the learning phase. Do you have a methodology of how you go about learning something? Because I, I think sometimes – you know, there's a difference between doing research and, and seeking out uh, real uh, experts in a particular field, or in your case, Bill, you had mentioned you're going to folks that might have a different point of view than a lot of folks that you typically uh, agree with on certain issues. And then there's the other version of it that's basically just like looking crap up on a Google machine, you know? Uh, so how do you go about it? I, uh, I'll be honest with you. I, I ask a lot of questions to people. I don't try and put my stake in the ground. So for example, I'll be with my Republican friends. And I said, tell me, tell me what you think critical race theory is and how it's affecting. And it's curious how they pair it back what they think they hurt. And it's, it, it tends to be somewhat extreme on things. And some of the Republican friends I have are extreme. I mean, they, they are diehard Republicans uh, certain politicians like Trump can never do anything wrong. 
Pelosi is the reincarnated devil. Kennedy down in Atlanta is their hero. Uh, and, you know, stuff like that. And I'm going, wow, okay, there's, there's some, we got we to gotta get some balance here because that, those are fringes to me in many cases. Um, and just like AOC, you know, it's another one that's kind of made a lot of noise in the system. But, you know, and the other thing is we would like to get those people on our show because I'd like to do some little research and find out, I'm sure they've done some good things for their community. Yeah. Or else they wouldn't be getting elected. And uh, Eric Cantor, who was, who was speaker at one point or going to be speaker. He was, yeah, a big he was lined player. up for that. Yeah. He got primaried. Yeah. I got primaried. Well, that primary was where my in-laws looked. Oh. So I, I went up and I said, what happened? He said, he didn't pay attention to the constituents. Mm. He was so interested in everything national. He wasn't doing anything for the constituents and they just kicked him out. And so what I would like to ask people like that, uh, the extreme is, okay, tell us, you know, what you've done for the community to kind of do some research, but then say, how do you find common ground with representative X? And if they say we can't, and I'm saying you cannot sit down and agree on the type of coffee even. Yeah. Yeah. Where can you draw? Cause I, when I, one of the things when I was in the uh, Capitol, we would go every night, the Congressman Vanek, every night we would go out, he was cheap. So he would give, give me a stack of all the uh, lobbyist dinners. Okay. He'd say every night we're going out to dinner and we're going to interact with congressmen and stuff. He says, and when we're done speaking, we're going to leave, but we're going to eat well. So we did. He, he would spend so much time interacting with congressmen and senators. They would meet in a, a restaurant. They would meet in a bar. They would go to parties together. They'd interact with their wives, you know, and friends. They played practical jokes on each other. Holy cow. The practical jokes they played on each other were classic. I mean, just unbelievable stuff. I don't think we have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's everybody runs back to their district. Nobody interacts. Uh, I suspect if you spend some time with some of these people, you might find they're they're okay. Yeah. I have a developing theory about that. I'd love to run it by a sociologist or maybe read up on some studies that have already been done on this. But I think that there is a developing mindset that prioritizes a combat kind of a mindset. So the the highest priority isn't what we might think of as um, and any of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's none of those things. The highest priority is who the adversary is. And, and sometimes the adversary is defined very loosely as anybody who has one drop of a thought that agrees with the, the adversary, the progressives, yeah. the, you know, or, or you know, some, sometimes there are folks, I don't even want to think of it as a right and left thing you know, or, or a progressive versus conservative, because it's because it's not that there are folks who just are in that battle mindset, right? And then everything else can be done away with. Truth can be done away with. Uh, being a good neighbor can be done away with. Collaboration, comp, comp, let alone compromise, can be done away with, because everything is in subservience to winning and beating that enemy, right? And that explains, I think, um, I, I think that Donald Trump understood that, he was a master of that of that mindset and played to it, you know, so but but I do think that there is we were talking about this the other day. I do think there's a wide coalition of people. Some folks might believe in, 
you know, a $15 minimum wage. And some folks might have a much more libertarian approach to that, but we believe in, in truth. We believe in, in um, basic decency. We believe in figuring out how to live among each other, you know? So let's figure out some sort of way to live together and talk about what makes sense in terms of minimum wage, at least in our community, let alone the rest of the country. You know, and I just as one example, there's a whole host of other issues, but the issues just become issues. You know, as long as there are some points of agreement, you know, does does truth matter? Does basic decency and civility matter? Does being a good neighbor and, and loving charity matter? You know, if we can agree on some some fundamentals, then, um, you know, it's not to say that a lot of the rest is, is going to be easy, but at least we have a starting point to talk about those things. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Totally agree. You know, I, I think Odell, the, the, I'd like Odell to share the story of uh, the, the Arc de Triumph or the uh, O.J. Simpson, whichever one you want. I think they're both interesting. Yeah, definitely. And Corey, very well said. You know, I go um, get invited from time to time to the Lincoln Reagan dinner. That's a uh, GOP dinner that we have in Greensboro. And I would be asked to do the prayer or say a few words or something like that. And people would get upset. You know, people would be up, why are we allowing this Democrat to even come to our event? But I think what we say is that we need to reach across aisles. I think a lot of times the constituents, those who are in charge, not always, but don't want, don't want you to reach across the aisles. They want to shoot and throw hand grenades across the aisles, you know, but someone has to stand in the gap and Bill and myself stands in the gap and it's not always easy. Everybody's not happy with this common ground stuff because Bill and myself have a certain reputation in town. Not that we're the most popular or the best looking, but we have some well, kind of validity. some of y'all are the best looking. <laughs> okay, and then people say, "Well, wait a minute. If they can do it, other people can do it." Because people have vested interests in keeping us away from each other. So we we got an opportunity. Um, everybody knows every city has Rotary Clubs and everyone has the Rotary Club. We all understand that. So we got invited to the Rotary Club to talk about what we're doing. And after that, we do Q&As. Now, I love Q&As. Some people are terrified of Q&As because these curveballs come from wherever. But Bill and myself has decided that we're going to prepare ourselves by taking curveballs. And the first one was this. The guy was talking about George Floyd and everything else. And it's like, why? Why are you all making George Floyd into a Martin Luther King Jr.? George Floyd was a thug. He was a criminal. He was passing a fake $20 bill and all this. And it's like, all that may or may not be true, but he was a human being. And the way he was murdered, the way it happened in broad daylight, then you ask yourself the question, which one was being unhumane? Was it the law enforcement officer or George Floyd? And secondly, that's something to think about. And people don't like that, especially powerful, rich, white people don't like that coming out of a Black person's mouth. So we did Q&A. And this gentleman raised his hand just as nice as he could be. And you know, I was getting battered with all kinds of questions. But this one, he says, Odell, why did Black people, you all celebrate when OJ Simpson was acquitted? Now, OJ, I'm sitting there saying, White folk, y'all still hung up on OJ? Now, OJ, has, <laughs> all has happened. Y'all still mad about OJ. So I said, okay, we didn't applaud OJ being acquitted. Whether OJ did it or not, I don't know. I wasn't there. What we applauded was this. 
this system that rich white people built, you all built this system that if you have enough money and you can get the right lawyers and you can fight all the details, you can do all these things. And we were applauding the fact that it worked for us. As many people know, OJ left being black a long time ago. OJ wasn't living in the black community. OJ wasn't uh, hanging out with black folk in the hood. Everybody knew that, but OJ is still us. And that you had a system that worked for us because a lot in America, systems don't work for black people. It doesn't work for us the way it works for white people. So this was a system built by and for white folks. And OJ Simpson had the connections, the money and everything else to utilize that system. And it got him the results that he needed. You know, we many of us, we get to the point of saying, an attorney, a lawyer will be given to you, appointed to you if you can't afford one. So what kind of representation do we get? We didn't get the OJ Simpson representation, but that's the way it is. And the guy looked at me like, oh my God, for 20 years, I'm mad because I thought you are applauding OJ killing Nicole and the other young man. And I still laugh when I think about Cato Cato, but I, you know, that's a whole nother deal, you know? But, but they, well, he was upset. He's upset with me for 20 years because I'm black and he felt, because you could feel it, you could feel it coming out of him that why did you all applaud OJ? We didn't applaud OJ, man. We applauded the fact that for once, a black man beat the system. And mm -hmm. I know that sounds horrible as a Christian, I don't know, put my disclaimer in here, I don't know if OJ did or he didn't do it, but that's what we were applauding. And I talk about race a lot. Bill mentioned the whole idea. One of the things why race and critical race theory is so hard and so difficult. Many of us grew up with this silly game called red light, green light. You know, in the South is a big deal. I don't know how it was on the West Coast, but the red light, green light thing was the person in charge was called IT, I-T. So it controlled a lot of the movement. Well, we went from this thing called race on a red light, green light perspective. Lessons we learned on our grandmother's porch about black people or about white people, all this kind of stuff. Then we went to this thing called an intersection. An intersection was a little bit more complicated because it had a red light, we understood that, but it had a yellow light that meant wait, and then it had a green light. We understood green light meant go. Now, when we get Grown up. Now we're dealing with something like the Arc de Triumph in Paris, France. Bill and myself, our wives went there. Now you have a roundabout. Yeah. You have a roundabout, a different culture, a lot of entry exits. It's no red light, green light. It's not a game. It's no intersection to say red, yellow, or green. You're out there and you get out there and has all these point of entries and exits. And that's how it is with race right now. You can get ran into, and the signs are in French, so you can't even you can't even read it. They're not in English, so you don't even know what's politically correct, what's not correct. And a lot of people having a lot of problems saying, "Take us back to where it once was." But in Paris, it's not going back to the way Americans wanted to work. And America, the country that I love, we have some racial baggage that we don't want to deal with, and we won't deal with it. So now it's dealing with us. Yeah. And that's what me and Bill talk about. And for us to talk about stuff like that, 
It's hard. And I'm a Democrat and he's a Republican and I'm black and he's white, but we're just trying to talk the truth because we're both trying to get into heaven. And people like, I wonder in the midst of everything, in the midst of us winning, is heaven part of the just casual? Is heaven part of the friendly fire? We kill heaven in the fact that we're going to win the day. That's something to think about as a Christian. You know, is heaven a casualty? Is truth a casualty? Because we know some of the stuff about race, whether black or white, and I'm not saying all black people are a certain way, or all white people are a certain way, but a lot of this stuff we know better and we still perpetrate it on both sides. Yeah. And we're yeah. lying about certain things. We're looking at it one way, case in point. And I don't want to be going on a soapbox, but I you done rubbed the genie now. So the genie's out. <laughs> the genie's out. When we out. look at the whole thing that happened in the Capitol. I say we know better and they knew better. Meaning that if it was the black folks on Black Lives Matter went up and attacked the Capitol, it would be red, black, Ooh. black all over those stairs. We knew as black people, we knew better not to try that kind of stuff. But as the white folks who did it, they knew they could do it and get away with it because they were not afraid that armed guards would shoot them down and they knew they wouldn't do it. And see, that's the America we don't want to talk about. That's the race we don't want to talk about. But as Black folk, we knew that if we would attack the Capitol, we would get shot down. We knew that. That's what we know. We know that. So we're not going to do that. That makes sense. And, and I'm not angry. I'm passionate because yeah. it's true. And people don't understand. It's like, no, 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 we wouldn't have shot you. Okay. Okay. All right. We knew better. Trust me, certain things you know when you're black. You know certain things you do, certain things you don't do. You don't go to a Klan rally when you're black. You know you don't go there. Even if you're the invited guest, you don't go. That's just the way it is. <laughs> oh, man. Well, politics, you bring up a really interesting point. It's, it's increasingly an aspect of our culture that just defines identities and, and borderlines. Yet you're both committed to finding common ground. I'm curious, are there issues where you have to simply set it aside, where you haven't been able to find common ground. Yeah, uh, where we get our haircuts. <laughs> so, so, so it's not like a Clemson, South Carolina thing. Like, come on. <laughs> no, go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry, then I'll come behind you, please. Well, you know, I think we're pretty attuned to each other, so that when we feel there's some tension going on, we just talk about it. We just blare it out there. We don't. Mm hold back uh and you know i don't think it, it's not like we let something simmer a little bit and then you know it starts picking at us you know if we're driving along and i think he's driving lousy tells me and vice versa and if we think somebody's treated us unfairly we both talk about that and what's our viewpoint this is kind of a business arrangement also common ground we we talk a lot about that try and keep each other in the loop you know sometimes i get a little ahead of him and sometimes he gets a little ahead of me but we always circle back and, and touch base. So we haven't haven't run against too many. Have you thought of any, Odell? Yeah, definitely. I'm a big President Barack Obama fan. I love President Barack Obama. As a black man, I'm like, oh my God, we got a black president. Even to the point of the inauguration when he got out the car, I was me and every other black person in America, where you're a Democrat or Republican, you yelling, get back in the car, get back in the car, because they're gonna kill you. So, Corey, Bill, who's the they? If I have all this bias inside of me to say, President Obama, they're going to kill you. They, who's the they? 
See, those issues that I have and me and Bill talk about it. Bill's a Trump man. He was on Trump. I didn't like Trump, but he liked Trump. So it's like, okay, why did my friend like Trump? But it didn't matter. Trump or President Obama, it did not, I should say President Trump. I'm sorry, because I really don't like when white people call Obama Obama instead of President Obama. So I have to check myself and say President Trump, because if you won't respect, you have to give respect. But I had no idea why my friend Bill liked President Trump. And he probably had no idea why his friend Odell liked President Obama. But at the same time, it was things about President Obama when he did it wrong, me and Bill would talk about it. And it was things about President Trump when he did it wrong. One of the things that Bill really shocked me, a lot of things, but this one, he was the first one that just came out about the January 6th situation. He like, no, 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 we can't do that. Is that's like, he, he wouldn't go there. And that's why I love him. That's why I love him in certain things. I feel the same way about President Biden with this whole thing. After I think he messed up some things. You know, I'm not judging. It just could have went better. So we have to call a spade a spade and we have to go from there. Because when Bill came and like, you know, because a lot of white people, Republican, I knew, well, the it wasn't a, it wasn't a attack on the Capitol. And I'm like, see, we're lying now. Yeah. We're lying. So we can't talk. If you have a reality and I have a reality, Bill, Bill, do you remember that moment you came and just you were just going off about what happened at the Capitol? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. We we at our hunt club, we had a kid up there, Charlie something. Uh, he was the leader of Proud Boys in North Carolina. Oh, and, and they did maneuvers uh, at our hunt camp. Wow. We didn't know it. We didn't know we would go there on after they'd been up there. And so it was one of these weird. But, I, you know, I would talk to the kid. The kid was always a little weird, a little off. And you could tell that he was very, very right wing, very much so. But then, you know, the when the, this whole thing started with the attack on the Capitol, it's interesting. I, I had a guy that came and I, we were going to put up a, a barn in the back here. And uh, he's a good help work. He's worked with me before. Good contract. And he said, Bill, there's going to be something big coming down January 6th. I got a buddy that's tied in. And he was going through all these details, I mean, about this stuff. And I'm like, you know, that just doesn't sound right. But, you know, and I, I didn't realize that Trump had called everybody to come on January 6th, even though I, I paid attention to his tweets. But then when it happened, I looked at that and having worked in the house and being in those halls, I said, well, there's a couple of things that jump out. One is Trump should have never invited all those people to D.C. Yeah. And they're saying, well, it was a busload of people that antagonized. I said, it looked like thousands of people. So don't give me it's just a couple busloads. And even if it was a couple busloads, by Trump inviting people to that rally during a pandemic doesn't make any sense. If, if he felt he was wrong, then they could, do, they could do protests in their cities, in their capital. They didn't have to come to D.C. for it. And that was a whole, I think that was a whole planned thing. That wasn't, you know, now we had a couple busloads of Republicans go from here. And they said they didn't see anything. It was perfectly fine. And, you know, they did the rally. They didn't know about all the other stuff going on. And I believe them. But I, I still said, why are you going up there during a pandemic? Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense. So I, I blame the people that were invited. And there were definitely he brought a bad element into the city. And when you do that, my dad used to tell me, he says, if you see trouble, you got one of two choices. You can stay and get involved and probably get hurt or you can walk away from it. And he says, I'd advise you to walk away. And, and uh, I've learned that over the years. The best thing to do is if you see trouble, get your, yourself and your friends out of there and get away from it. Yeah.
Yeah. You know, leading up to the 2020 election, I was, I don't know if you could say I was purely finding common ground with folks that were still supportive of, of Trump, but I at least had, uh, had a sense of understanding. Uh, a couple of my friends helped me understand that they felt they were, you know, there's um, in Southern California, not, not our town. Our town is definitely purple. Uh, it was historically red, uh, represented by a Republican for the better part of the last 30 years. But so being in Southern California, uh, there's very, very uh, liberal, progressive folks all around. So someone who is more conservative in their views, you're often under attack or you feel under attack, whether it's something that you post on Facebook or, you know, being at, at you know, a restaurant with some friends and, you know, you get you get attacked for saying something that sounds conservative. So a lot of folks felt under attack. So. One of the messages, one of the central messages of Trump's last campaign is he's fighting for us, right? I thought that was very effective messaging because felt folks felt like they were under attack, they were grieved, the individual friends that I had, the way they expressed it to me, and he's fighting for me. Again, going back to not not quite as bad as that combat mindset, but you know, when you feel under attack, when you feel when you feel folks are castigating you just because of you know, where you stand on certain political issues, man, you just you just want somebody to fight, fight back for you, you know, but then leading up to January 6th, I did think that there were some, I was actually grateful that all those lawsuits went through. I thought, you know, most of them were frivolous, um, but I was grateful that, that uh, those election challenges were brought because we learned, a lot of us who were paying close attention learned a lot about the election system, learned a lot about the judicial system. I gained a great appreciation about the conservative legal movement. In fact, you know, really gained appreciation for them thinking that they were a lot of the heroes. Trump appointed judges were some of the ones that uh, that ruled uh, definitively on certain cases, you know. But by the time he got to January 6th, you know, Trump lost a big um, uh, a big ruling. I think it was December 11th. Uh, and then December 12th is when he sent out one of those tweets about J January 6th. It's going to be huge. And I thought, man, but at this point, there's really no there's no rational principled case to make uh, for trying to overturn the election. Certainly no rational principled case to make for storming the Capitol. Now, even then, even at that time, I did not begrudge folks who maybe really, truly thought that the there was some fraud in the election. It's their right to go and protest. I didn't agree with what they were doing there. Um, I definitely, along with you, Bill, I did not agree with the fact that they were there putting themselves in harm's way in the midst of a pandemic. So there was a lot of things I disagreed with, but it wasn't, to me, it wasn't something to, it wasn't one of those lines that you draw and say, nope, I just can't do it anymore. But once you got folks that are storming the Capitol, once you got folks that are taking uh, flagpoles, and beating fire uh, uh, policemen with it, uh, and violence is breaking out, and defecation in the Capitol, and and just certain times when when I hear when that is happening, and they were I think it was in the the um, Senate chambers, uh, and and they were invoking the Lord's name in a prayer under those circumstances, it was similar to when Trump held the Bible in front of St. John's. There, there are certain things that just uh, viscerally hit me, like. That's literally taking that that moment when he took the Bible. It's literally taking the Lord's name in vain. It's literally taking God's God's word for vanity's purpose, uh, and it's just the way it hit me. I couldn't do it anymore. I, like there's there's only so far. I, like 
I'm a Christian, but I ain't Christ. <laughs> you know, I I'm not Jesus. So there's only so far that my empathy can go, that my sympathy can go. So sorry, sorry to, to yeah, go on yeah, like it, that, but you, you got me thinking. Let me let me tell you, I'm going to add to that just a little bit. Now, if you want to add some more questions, I still don't get why the Republicans turned down the investigation. Oh, well, it was it was written by Katko. The Republican wrote a, per, a, a it was a 9-11 commission. It, exactly. And, and so that that threw up another big red flag for me saying, what is going on here? You know, this is in our in our in our history of our country. We've never had such a thing happen and we don't want to investigate it. I mean, yeah. we investigate, you know, all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and this is something you don't want to investigate. And more importantly, a lot of those people that were in the chambers when it was under attack were saved by the policemen. Yep. And they weren't even supporting the policemen. So right. I, I, my, my switch did go off then. Well, January 6th, that day I was in the car and I turned on uh first. It was the Will Cow majority. I, I there's some guys I listened to. Uh, some of them used to. Uh, used to resonate with me, uh, but now I listen to to hear, just to hear. Hey, is this one of those moments? I thought January six was one of those moments, like nine eleven, where we could all come together and agree this is bad. Can we just come together as Americans and say storming the Capitol violently is bad? But that day, uh, the last fifteen minutes of Wilkow, the first fifteen minutes of, of Hannity on the radio that day, I heard the beginnings of the talking points emerging. Uh, one talking point was, where was your outrage when? You know, and it was uh, they were uh, looting in, in Portland and Seattle. Another one was uh, people are saying many people are saying it's actually Antifa dressed up as Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. So so there are a couple of, of, of talking points that were already emerging, you know, and then even beginning to whitewash it. These are peaceful protesters. But the, the biggest one that really that really troubled me was, well, what did you expect? So on the one hand. You know, I don't agree with folks who question the integrity of the election. If that's still what they believe, I just don't think they're paying attention. Certainly not paying attention to, to, you know, the Secretary of State in Georgia and the lead elections official in Georgia and all the processes and all the the, the, the cases that were brought forth. Um, I just, and if, if anything, gained more appreciation for those systems. But folks who, you know, they they're stuck in that mindset. That that's fine. But the what did you expect? What did you expect? So they're justifying continuing and perpetuating this belief that the election system is is uh, there's fraud in the elections. Um, but the what did you expect reminded me, uh, and this is a little bit harsh, but I was once um, I was once in a situation. A good friend of mine, uh, veteran, uh, was in Iraq uh, in the early two thousands, and uh, a buddy of mine from church um, were called over to his house, and he. Um, he, he, he was suffering from PTSD and he had become violent. The kids had already left the house and went to their neighbors. Uh, but our buddy was there and the wife was there and he was, he was going through um, waves of, of moments um, where he would settle down. And then suddenly it, like a light switch would be turned on and he'd go into a rage and we had to restrain him from uh, violent, uh, violently abusing his wife um, and one of the things that he was saying is, well, what did you expect? Uh, in other words, you made me this angry, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, listen, that that's a, a multi-layered issue. PTSD is real. Mental health is real. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the uh, excusing 
um, abusing your spouse, violent violence against anyone with what did you expect? You made me do this. No, no, I, that's how, that's how one of those talking points resonated for me. I, when, when that was going on January 6th, I was jumping around between Fox and uh, CNN and, uh, and uh, America now network or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. OANN. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was interesting that uh, Fox and CNN were covering it live OAN had uh, Giuliani given his dissertation on why the election was fraud. Mm. They didn't cover it all, hardly at all. And I was like, what? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other. You know, yeah, it's, it's another issue. But, you know, you know, so you're part of the media now. So I, I think that, uh, you know, being media savvy as consumers of media, we now the democratization of media and social media can be a good thing or can be a bad thing. I think that that the platforms themselves are neither here nor there. It's it's how we consume it as consumers and how we use it as folks that have the blessing of having a microphone in front of our face. So we can be part of the media. We can be independent media outlets that are contributing uh, something of value, uh, contributing to tikkun olam, to God's redemption project, or we can be tearing it down. I, I hope more often than not, I'm on the former and not the latter. So uh, I'd love to ask you, fellas, we, we've talked about so much and covered so much at this stage of your lives and careers. What are you hoping to achieve, whether it be personally, professionally, for your communities, for your church, your country? What are you what are you looking to do at this stage of the game? Well, you know, Corey, one of the things that I want to do, um, I figured I'm on my second to last leg um, writing a book now called Come Walk With Me. I have a grandson and I'm talking to him about who he is, where he's from. We can uh, trace our family back to what plantation they were on in a little small county called Abbeville, South Carolina, that prides itself on being the birthplace and the deathbed of the Confederacy and leaving there, going to Charleston, South Carolina, you know, and the whole thing of the Civil War. I mean, this is just stuff people don't want to talk about. We call Charleston, South Carolina, my hometown, the antebellum, you know, Disney World. You know, it's like tourists come from all over, not all, but some. And it's like they want to see going with the wind. They want to see the slave quarters. They want to see where the slaves were sold. And one of the happiest days in my life is when they took down this huge statue in downtown Charleston of John C. Calhoun. You know, John C. Calhoun was from Abbeville, South Carolina, the place where my ancestors were enslaved. And the town that they grew up in where they would hang black men, mm. lynch black men, excuse me, and stuff like that. All that stuff is real. And it hasn't been that long ago, had a black, a black college and they burned the college down to the ground. And a lot of people got killed in the, the college back in those days. And when people do the stereotypes of black people are ignorant or black people are lazy or black people don't want to do this, it's like those stereotypes and their biases, they're not true. They're not true, but nothing hurts, in my opinion, like when Black people go at each other, whether they're Republican or Democrat, and call each other names. And uh, Republicans say, well, you on the plantation, you know, stuff, you've heard that before, you know, that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, when Dylan Roof went into Mother Emanuel's church, premeditated to start a race war, Dylan wasn't concerned were you a Democrat or Republican. Dylan said, you're Black, and you're in the most powerful institution for Black folks in America. 
That's the African-American church. So Dylan Ruth understood exactly what he was doing. He understood exactly the outcomes he wanted, but Dylan didn't understand the Holy Spirit. Dylan didn't understand God. Dylan didn't understand forgiveness. Dylan didn't understand all of that. Now, if it was me, could I do it? I don't know. But I'm just saying that when you saw uh, President Barack Obama in church with everybody else and my friend, my friend who I endorsed and supported, a white Republican uh, congressman was in there too singing Amazing Grace. That's the best of America. Mm -hmm. Well, in the midst of this tragedy that someone planned that wanted to divide America, want us to go at each other, we're in there singing Amazing Grace. God, that's all we have. God bless America. God save America. That's all we have. So that's what I want to do in my last days. I just wanted to say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful. I know you got arrows, but guess what? Well done. Yeah. Because I don't know how this is going to end. Everybody don't like me and Bill. Everybody don't, you know, as far as I know, Bill, we haven't got an invitation to come to a Klan rally yet, have we? <laughs> I checked my mail today. There was nothing in there. I nothing was in there. right out to look. To answer your question for me, I don't have a plan, but God has a plan for me. And I have learned that he opens those doors and closes doors. And I can give you a couple examples of where, you know, I was in a, uh, I really didn't like homeless men and he put me in a homeless men's ministry. Mm -hmm. And then he, he closed that door and he put me in with high school kids. And I did that for 16 years and he closed that door and he opened up scouting. And that's that door keeps opening and opening and opening. So I keep going through it. And when that door closes, will I be upset? Probably not, because I'll know that, okay, God, I'm done. You've got me done with that. You've got me to do something else. And obviously, God has Odell and I on this podcast thing. So that door keeps opening up <laughs> and keep meeting folks like you, Corey, to, to share this with. So I don't have a plan. I, 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 and I know it sounds trite, but God has a plan. And I just try and pay attention and go through through those doors. Yeah. Well, Corey, you know, one thing Bill told me once that really just shook me a little bit. I don't think he knew how much it shook me. He said, Odell, five years ago, me and you couldn't have been friends. Me and you couldn't have this conversation. Bill, Bill and I, I didn't really, I didn't dig into that because once you open the door, you don't know what's in there. But I asked him now on, on national podcast radio, but Bill, what in the world did you mean? I got I got to be honest with you. You were so good looking. <laughs> it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Uh, well, I got one piece of business, one question, and one more piece of business. So one important piece of business. Could you could you tell me about Youth of North Carolina? Yeah. Odell is on the board with me. Uh, it's a nonprofit we have that raises money in North Carolina. You can go to the website, www.youthofnc.com. And uh, donate if you want. The money's used for youth organizations and youth events. Uh, last year, I think we got close to $60,000 and gave it all away. We have no overhead. We don't have any employees. Everybody's a volunteer. I think we paid $500 for a bookkeeper. Okay. Maybe that's it. And uh, the money we fed about, uh, about 12,000 people. Wow. And uh, we bought blankets and we bought clothes and we bought all kinds of stuff. Uh, that we did. That's great. Youthofnc.com. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So here's a question. Do you have any questions for me? I do. Okay. One thing is, why do you do what you do? 
because what people don't understand, this work is hard. This work is hard. And with social media and anybody and everybody can get to you, it can be somewhat dangerous too. But certain people, we out there doing it, we don't know who's coming up to us, talking to us. We don't know what question is going to be there. Bill and myself, we pride ourselves on curveballs. You know, sometimes curveballs hit you in the head. You know, so why do you do what you do and reaching out to us? And I just want to say thank you, but I just want to know the why. Because you don't have to do this, my friend, and you do it well. Thank you. So when um, Barack Obama ran the first time in 08, I really liked John McCain. Uh, and then Sarah Palin was picked as his VP. I like the idea of it. You know, a Republican that bucked her own party, uh, had some executive experience, uh, kind of balanced out John McCain. It, it sounded good. And then she opened her mouth. And I, I couldn't understand why so many of my friends from church really, really liked her. And it goes back to that thing of somebody's fighting, you know, everything that she just got like there, there was a lot of stuff that she just she, she wasn't ready for the prime time. You know, she she was just talking out of excuse me, the expression talking out of her butt. She didn't know what she was talking about, you know, but then there were other times when she was really in the zone when she was in when she was in the zone. It, it was it was when she was combative, everything, you know. The people who didn't agree with her were, were the enemy and, and we're the real patriots and that whole mindset. And I just I thought, man, this is the world that we're in right now. Um, so it's really troubled me. And I thought, you know, can we contribute just just one little bit? There's a story of um, salt granules in a salt shaker. Maybe you've heard this story and uh, the salt granules talking to each other. and Man, you know there's this, there's this creature that comes and shakes our home. And, and, and every time he shakes the home, some of our brothers and sisters leave and, and, and they're, they're never to be seen again. And, and some of them are just were really worried about it. And there's one old granule who's just, he's okay. He kind of knows what's going on. You know, it's okay. It's okay. And he comes and shakes and they're going crazy. Oh, I, it's going to be me pretty soon. Oh no. Aren't you afraid old salt granule? Isn't Aren't you afraid it's going to be you? Yeah, it might be me. Maybe not but I know it's going to go on. I'm going to go into that can of soup over there, that, that, that uh, pot of soup. And uh, you know, maybe I won't be the same, you know? And, and uh, they said, but, but doesn't that bother you? Doesn't that bother you? You won't like, you won't be you anymore. He said, you know, I might end up in that pot of soup next on the next shake or the shake after that. And uh, I might, I, I might completely disintegrate, but you know something, if I go into that pot of soup, that soup's never going to be the same. <laughs> you know, I'm going to add a little flavor to that soup. I'll do just a little bit. So uh, I don't know if I told that story too well, but I, I know that we just have this one humble program that we're doing, you know, and some other stuff I'm doing in my life. And I, I just want to be that one little salt granule. I, I want to be a part of the conversation. Um, I feel like we're doing something good here. We're bringing you know, a good looking black man and a, and a, a white gentleman together and one Democrat, one Republican together. And we're having conversations across these, these, what used to be borders, you know, wow. uh, religious borders, political borders, uh, just all kinds of, we just want to reach across those borders and we want to have these tough conversations. Yeah. Uh, and I welcome tough conversations, but we want to do it. You know, we kind of jokingly say without killing each other, but in an edifying way. You know, can we have just, can we just be just a little bit of salt in the culture? That's, that's why I'm doing it. So, 
Uh, I appreciate you asking. I hope this is not the last conversation that we have. So before we go, can you tell us how we can find out more information about your wonderful show, Bill and Odell are finding common ground and how we can find each of you? Sure. They can go to our website, www.the common ground show, the common ground show. And for you white folks, it's yeah. the common ground show. The common yeah, for, ground for show. For white folks is the, for black folks is the. So it's <laughs> the common ground dot show. Yes. Great, great. Uh, well, I so appreciate you doing this. Uh, I'm glad to get to know you both a little bit better. Uh, I feel like I may, I've made new friends. I hope, hope that we get to hang out again. Uh, and as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcast. And most importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.